From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Vamsi Kanuri is an assistant professor of marketing in Notre Dame's Mendoza College of Business. His areas of expertise include marketing analytics, digital marketing, and decision support models. And his research has appeared in leading marketing and management journals, as well as books in the popular press. One of Vamsi's most recent studies, undertaken with two colleagues from Texas A&M University, develops a more scientific approach for posting content to social media in order to increase the likelihood that people will engage with it. Published in the November 2018 issue of the Journal of Marketing, the team's research suggests different types of stories perform better at different times of day, for reasons that have to do with our biology. We talked about this research and the ways it can help social media managers sort through what can literally be a trillion options for sharing their stories. I also got Vamsi's thoughts on how we, as a society, might promote more civil and responsible discourse on social media, where consumers, advertisers, and the platforms themselves regularly have conflicting interests. Except, of course, when it comes to cat gifts. There, we're all on the same page. So, Vamsi Canary, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Oh, thanks, Ted. <laughs> Excited know, to have you here. here. So, you and two co-authors, you recently published a paper in the Journal of Marketing that advances a novel theoretical framework for how social media managers should go about scheduling their content. And when I see novel theoretical framework, I think, <laughs> wow, that sounds a lot more rigorous than things we typically associate with social media. Why was this something that you felt was worth studying? It's got some history to it. So let me start with my doctoral days at University of Missouri in Columbia. My dissertation was on a topic that newspapers really cared about and worried about 10 years ago. And that was about, you know, pricing, how to price, how to come up with a menu of multi-format subscription plans and price them. So, you know, I worked with a newspaper firm and was eventually successful in developing an algorithm that was finally implemented at the firm, and the firm realized significant financial benefits from that algorithm. Now, when the word spread to other departments in that organization. So social media manager and people that manage the newspaper's social media website, they reached out to me asking if I could help them with optimizing their traffic from their own dedicated social media page so they can increase their digital ad revenues. So the way it works is when people come in from different sources and they eventually show up on the newspaper's website, advertisers on that newspaper's website end up paying money for those impressions. So 
they're trying to, I mean, given that most of the newspapers in the country are scrambling for money at this point, so they wanted to explore every single opportunity. So that's how this, this started. Like, this was three and a half years ago. And then I said, okay, you know, I, I love building algorithms. You know, <laughs> I have a very technical background, so I was super excited. Right. Uh, and this was a novel problem that most newspapers were facing, so I thought it would be generalizable and it would help out most newspaper, newspapers in the country. So I started talking to the social media manager there, and it so happens they didn't have a strategy well, at all. Well, I was going to, before you, I'll let you continue there, but yeah. there was this, and I mentioned to you, this to you before we started recording, there was a Notre Dame press release about this paper right. really recently, and there was this line in there that boggled my mind, and it goes to what you're talking about here. It said, a social media manager charged with posting 10 stories in one day with a budget to promote four of them can position the post in more than seven trillion ways. And that was, tri- I, I've said on this podcast before, billion with a B. This is trillion with a T. They're flying by the sea of their pants and it feels absolutely hopeless. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the complexity kicked in. And as we know, when there are, when there are complex situations, humans try to avoid them by adopting simple rules of thumb that are obviously not as efficient as algorithms. And that was the basis for the algorithm. But typically, the way social media management works at newspaper firms is there's a social media manager and there's a content editor. And the social media manager, every day at, say, 8 a.m., meets the content editor, and the content editor picks 10 to 15 stories that he thinks would gain traction on social media, hands it over to the social media guy, and says, now go publish this across all the social media platforms we've subscribed to. And as you know, the social media platforms are cropping up like every single day, every other week we have a new platform. So usually what firms do is they subscribe to softwares like Hootsuite or Mm -hmm. Sprout Social, you know, when... They push out, so if you specify a time of the day and the news article that you want to push and give your login details, they'll automatically publish all that information on these social media sites. Now, they're excellent at their job. It's just that the real problem is the social media manager doesn't know what to post when and which of those stories to actually promote and boost and spend that money on and how much to spend. And these are real problems. So when I asked the social media manager, um, the manager said, well, we do it randomly. And we, we start tracking which news categories get more impressions or likes or comments at certain times of the day, and we make a note of it, and then we go from there. But as you rightly pointed out, if you think of, if you divide the day into several time slots, let's say 15-minute time slots or half-an-hour time slots, and then look at the number of stories that the social media manager has to post, and then look at the number of combinations and opportunities they have to actually boost certain posts, it turns out there's numerous combinations, more than numerous, trillion com- more than trillion combinations, and they have to pick like 10 from those trillion combinations, <laughs> right. which is humanly impossible. Right. So they end up adopting these rules of thumb, and that will make it less efficient mm-hmm. when it comes to So my job really was to figure out what times of the day people actually consume certain types of content, and could we come up with a generalizable framework by understanding what motivates people to consume content at certain times of the day. Mm-hmm. So that was the foundation for this framework, that you were talking about earlier. 
Well, and it's interesting because what you and your co-authors turn to were people's circadian rhythms, their sleep-wake cycles. That's right. It's an interesting kind of juxtaposition because I think we think about social media, it's all online, it's artificial, it doesn't, in some ways, it's real, but it doesn't feel real, but you're looking at the most natural thing in the world in our biology to figure this out. What... Absolutely. What motivated you to, to look into that specifically? We started contemplating different theories when we, when we said, okay, we, we got to build this algorithm, but what would be the basis for this algorithm? We wanted to go to the people that, are, that were giving those likes, right? So that were commenting on the articles. And one of the things we realized was, well, they might be commenting more when they have more time, right? But that doesn't explain why they would comment more. So we, that was the first theory we started you know, using to explain some of the patterns we were observing in the, in the data. But just the discretionary time that people have to comment and like, that didn't explain why they would comment more on certain articles versus other articles. So we wanted to go more fundamental and basic about how people process content, uh, information in general, right? So that's when we started looking at literature in chronopsychology, wherein, you know, that talks about circadian rhythms and how people consume different things and behave differently and have these uh, this different psychology during different times of the day and different interpretation of things during different times of the day. And we thought maybe that explains why people would like to consume certain types of articles more during certain times of the day. And lo and behold, we were able to see that in the morning, people just have more working memory. I mean, when we wake up, this is again, you know, for people that follow regular sleep-wake cycles, we are not talking about undergrad students. Well, I know both of us have young children at home too, so it's like, and oh, children, oh wow, well-rested, what is that? People like us. That's right, that's right. So we're talking about, on average, we, we have... Social media subscribers are usually, at least at this newspaper, we we figured out that it was a, it was a, it had a national presence, but majority of its traffic was coming from within the state, mm-hmm. and majority of the people had normal sleep wake cycles. We could we could see that from their web traffic and things like that. So for people with normal sleep wake cycles, they have a lot of working memory when they wake up. So the availability of working memory is really high at the beginning of the day. So they're more naturally open to taking in more content. So if, if someone has subscribed to your, um, to your social media site, they're more likely to actually consume content in the morning. However, as the day progresses, the working memory availability actually shrinks because we take on more tasks during the day, our stress levels go up, cortisol levels go up, and it's been shown that when cortisol levels go up, the efficiency of working memory shrinks. That is, we are not able to, you know, take in more stuff or process or bring more information from our permanent memory into the working memory. So recollection of things actually goes down. The efficiency with which we recollect things goes down. So as the day progresses, this is what happens. And as the day progresses further, so we go from afternoon to evening, our stress levels sort of decrease a little bit. So all of a sudden, our working memory efficiency goes up. Mm-hmm. And that is why you see people 
uh, watching shows in the evening, more likely to actually indulge in in reading books and and things like that. So, and we saw these patterns were directly, you know, would directly explain why people would consume content on social media as well. Mm-hmm. We saw that as the day progresses, people are less likely to look at content that puts them in a high arousal state, negative arousal or positive arousal, because arousal has been linked to cortisol levels before. So when you get aroused with awe or mm-hmm. anger, you know, those kind of things, your cortisol levels go up, which means your working memory goes down. But our brain functions in a very amazing way, <laughs> actually. So when we're in the afternoon, when our cortisol levels are low, oh, high, sorry, high, and our working memory availability is low, our working memory kicks in this natural mechanism to restore the efficiency of working memory. It automatically forces us to screen information that will further hinder the performance of the working memory. So without actively processing this, you would actually screen out all the information mm-hmm. that will further hinder its performance, which means people are less likely to read information that puts them in that higher arousal state. So we were noticing that when newspaper put out these news articles that put people in the higher arousal state in the afternoon, the engagement levels were lower mm-hmm. than they were when the news, when the same news article was posted in the morning. Right. So there's an amazing difference. And interestingly, another thing happens in the afternoon. So while the working memory is screening all this information that further hinder, hinders its performance, it also focuses more on the information that it's able to process. So our concentration levels also go up in the afternoon compared to the morning or the evening. So the articles such as op-eds that require a higher level of cognitive processing, you know, receive higher engagement rates in the afternoon compared to the morning or the evenings. So it's, and I, I noticed, I felt like in the in the story that I read about it, it seemed to focus on the negative arousal kind of emotions, right. but it sounds like what you're saying is that positive or negative arousal in the moment, which would be associated with a higher level of cortisol, which is lower when we wake up, that's the time of day people are willing to be moved in right. that sense, so to speak, as Absolutely. opposed to trying to process yeah. an op-ed or, or whatever else. Exactly. So regardless of the information, you know, if a person is put in that higher arousal state, they'll automatically stop processing this information that will further hinder working memory's performance. Mm-hmm. And which is why you don't get any engagement on those articles or lower engagement on right. those articles. Now, this also has important implications for boosting mm-hmm. and promoting articles because when people have their working memory is availability is, is the lowest and their efficiency uh, is also low, that's when you need the most help in terms of pointing out what articles you want to read. So by definition, the boosting process, it so happens that consumers are only shown information that they would like because the algorithm will figure out based on certain characteristics of the text mm-hmm. whether or not it's a good fit for a person. So when a boosted article appears on the newsfeed, you're more likely to see it 
when you're in the afternoon compared to the morning or the or the evening because your working memory needs that little signal you know to tell you that this is the information that right. you want you, you want right. to read so and, and is it important that the article or story that's being boosted also follows that other characteristic of I know we talked about the high arousal, positive or negative emotion stories doing better in the morning. If you were, I'm imagining that if you were to boost that kind of story in the afternoon, it's not as effective as boosting something like an op-ed in the afternoon. Absolutely. Unfortunately, at this newspaper, so to test something like what you just said, we need to look at the interaction effects. Um, in, In econometric terms, we would call it an interaction effect between boosting and negative arousal content. Unfortunately, at this newspaper, we didn't have enough observations wherein the negative articles were boosted enough. But you're right. My conjecture, based on this theory, would be that booster articles, especially when they're negative emotion-based articles, would receive a much lower engagement in the afternoon than would articles you know, that don't have those emotions in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone who puts content on social media, you think about these things, and I, I'm right there because I mean, <laughs> with, with a side of knowledge, I, you know, it's kind of my my little one man band. So I do our social media and all those things. So that was the whole purpose of coming up with a more generalizable theory here, because we feel like, although we were looking at the newspaper form as a context here. This is actually applicable to any firm that posts content Mm -hmm. on social media, right? Mm -hmm. So, granted, there were some limitations here. We were only looking at content that was textual in nature. Uh, We can talk about it later, but, you know, right now I'm looking at content that's purely images. Mm -hmm. I'm actually working with the University of Notre Dame's social media team, Liz Harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, we know Liz well. (laughs) Um, So they were generous enough to give me complete access to the Instagram account where usually you just post images, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm working with a graduate student, undergraduate student, in coding up those to see what would be the optimal positioning of those images and what are the underlying characteristics that will draw our attention and are there cycles there as well. So. And in the newspaper work, was that exclusively, was that Facebook, or did you look at multiple platforms with that? We just looked at Facebook. Okay. So again, there's a lot of open-ended questions here, so mm-hmm. I was barely scratching the surface in terms of the complexity of these issues, right? right. So obviously, there's some idiosyncratic characteristics of these social media sites that will make absorbing the content or consuming the content more or less effective depending on different situations, which is precisely why we need more research in this domain. Mm-hmm. And we, we just don't have... I mean, people have been looking at what makes things go viral, right. and things like that, but more specific to a platform, a research that's just specific to Facebook or mm-hmm. LinkedIn or Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, and that highlights some of the behaviors of consumers on those platforms is mm-hmm. still needed. What we've talked about a lot so far was what time of day was optimal to post specific times of content. I'm wondering... that. Even I mean, you, you just put that in good context there, that there's so many questions to investigate about this. But I'm wondering at this point, were there any other trends or rules of thumb that you observed in terms of 
how social media managers can optimize their content, whether it's how frequently they should post, whether mm. I, I know for me I have a very specific philosophy on engaging with people who yeah. follow our account. I, there's a lot of different ways to approach social media, and I'm wondering if beyond time of day, if there's anything else that kind of elevated as, oh, this seems to drive more engagement with a brand's content. Unfortunately, you're not going to like my answer. Okay. So my <laughs> answer is no. Our research was very specific to the newspaper firm. So I don't want to really draw generalizations sure. based on this data. But the only generalizations that I want to draw beyond the nature of the content and boosting is about the interposed duration. So mm -hmm. in this newspaper, what we found was the optimal interpost duration, which is the time lag between posts, is about 90 minutes. And I think there's some generalizations to be drawn in that context, and we were talk talking about it a little while ago before the podcast, which is consistency, mm -hmm. right? If you're not consistent then your readers are not going to know when you're going to post. And from my experience, I've noticed that readers don't like anticipation. I mean, they do like anticipation, but to a certain, only when it's certain. Right, it's anticipation to an expect, there's a payoff. Yeah, exactly. And I, in the context in which we were talking about this was the reason I made the decision when I started the show to every other Thursday to right, have and right. it's in your feed when you wake up on Thursday morning because I want you to be able to expect like right. okay I know when it's going to be there and then hopefully you make you're more likely to make time for it exactly and so that's the downside so they'll go f for their content gratifications they'll just look for another provider and just go there right they're not going to keep waiting for you to post something so that's the downside of being less consistent now the downside of posting too frequently especially on social media sites when you get so many notifications and people are people are just inundated with so many notifications that they'll ju just turn off your notifications right or they'll just unsubscribe to your uh, social media feed and that's also bad so you need to have that optimal time. And the case of this newspaper firm, we found that it was 90 minutes. But the theory behind an optimal time, I think, is generalizable to your mm -hmm. question. Don't post too frequently. Don't just wait for such a long time that people are just going to go to a different spot. And in news, we know, you know, gets outdated very quickly. So they just cannot afford to wait that long. But even other organizations, for example, Nike or big brands like that, should have a consistent social media posting strategy mm -hmm. and they just need to keep following that. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. There was a real bottom line result oh, for yeah. this paper that, <laughs> that you worked with and I wanted you to share that because it, it, it's, I mean, it's great to talk about, oh yeah, okay, people yeah. in theory, this is when they engage more but there actually really is a real tangible result there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and we're just thrilled that the result was positive. So we built our algorithm. The beauty about the algorithm is that it was implemented in Excel. So there's a lot of Visual Basic VB coding involved, but we were able to create a template or a front-end tool for managers. And if you think about managers at newspaper firms especially, they don't have the money to invest in technology, right? So we were able to create this tool in Excel, which is widely available, spreadsheets, that they can actually implement in their day-to-day 
scheduling. Uh, all they have to do is provide certain inputs, mm -hmm. and the algorithm will run and give them a schedule, which then they could actually integrate that schedule to whatever social media software they're using, like Hootsuite or Spout Social. Now, the bottom line that you were mentioning earlier, at this firm, on a holdout sample of two weeks, I believe, 15 days, we're able to see that just by changing the time of the day, by reorganizing the posts based on these generalizable findings, we were able to see that the newspaper would have made 8% more in profits wow. just in those 15 days. You know, if they use this algorithm versus... Without spending you know, another dime. It just, without spending just another Just being dime. more strategic in terms yeah. of how they schedule the content. Yeah. So, or just, you know, this was the last two weeks of December. We used one years of data to actually predict and come up with these generalizable results. And we used those weights and intuition from, from the model to actually predict what the timing of these posts that were posted in the last two weeks of December mm -hmm. would have been if the firm was using our algorithm. Mm -hmm. And then we compared that performance to the actual post performance based on social media's mm -hmm. manager's intuition about you know, when those posts should go live. And we saw that they would have made 8% more by using our um, algorithm. And, and this is just a rough estimate. Obviously, there's a lot of... So different firms would reap different benefits. Um, mm -hmm. And we were only looking at those two weeks. Perhaps there are weeks in the, week, in, in the year where the newspaper firm would have reaped a higher profit, a lower profit than that. Maybe just by chance, the social media manager was getting the schedule right. And during those times, right. I mean, 10 in a, in a trillion, <laughs> right? <laughs> like winning the lottery how many times in a row? But yeah. Or one in a trillion, right, right. because that is a combination. Right. <laughs> one right. in a trillion. Right. That's right. Right, right. <laughs> that makes me think about the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the chances are higher or lower. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the social media manager odds are worse. So. Yeah. So, for our last question here, uh, before we eat, this is still social media centered, but it's kind of going up to the 50,000 foot version of social media right now. Sure. And I shared an article with you before before we met today from The Atlantic by uh, Taylor Lawrence, uh, written a couple weeks ago called, Twitter Should Kill the Retweet. Um, and in it, she's talking about, I don't think it's just at Twitter, I mean, there's been a lot of yeah. news about Facebook, but this soul searching going on at Twitter right now of how they might limit the spread of fake news, oh, how can they encourage civility, and just kind of in general. But one of the things that struck me about all this is when you were, if you were a social media manager eight years ago, there was just a lot less noise. I know. And you didn't have to be as strategic because your stuff stood out. Yeah. And now it's, there's so much, it's hard to stand out. So her kind of novel idea is, okay, get rid of the retweet button, which for people who aren't familiar with Twitter allows you to instantly reshare someone else's content really with as close to zero effort as possible. It's one click, and you can put it back out into the world, which Twitter didn't always have that right. functionality. Right. Obviously, that would be one way to limit the spread of information, which could be both good and bad. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is there anything that we can do that are real practical steps to just basically making this social media atmosphere work for us better than it currently does because there's a lot of ways it seems like it's falling down a little bit on the job right now. So absolutely. And while I was re reading the article, I was thinking about three audiences, right? So one, the consumers. Two, the firms. Three, the platform itself, right? And 
ultimately, a social media platform exists if there's audiences, you know, that are actually that is interested in the content and. The more people you get on there, you'll have more companies trying to use this platform, adopt that platform, advertise the platform. That's how the platform would survive. And we call these, in economics terms, two-sided markets. And the moment one of the groups leaves, in this case, if consumers leave, then advertisers find it no value, and which is why you've seen in the past you know, some of the platforms die because, you know, there's natural shifts in, in the adoption rates. So from that viewpoint, I was thinking about Retweet. And from a firm standpoint, that's really useful if they want to spread genuine good information. They want their consumers to have the ability to actually take a news article and share it with their friends. And... That's one of the ways newspapers, especially from within the context of, of the firm that we studied, we did this research. The firm would have certainly benefited and has benefited, I know that, uh, from talking to social media managers. So it would be a devastating move for firms like that that are trying to survive based on the traffic that's coming from social media. Now, more from an ethical standpoint, I think there is some merit to thinking about how to tone down or put restrictions on retweeting. You're absolutely right. Fake news is rampant on social media. And there has been some research, actually, on the persuasive uh, you know, side of this information and how soon, how quickly people get persuaded. And it's just crazy. And that's been one of the causes for concern about you know, what information and, and who posts it and how frequently it should get posted. In fact, I want to cite... Uh, a marketing study in Journal of Consumer Research that appeared recently, albeit in a different domain, in retail shopping. So they were looking at group decision-making and how consumers actually make decisions when they're in a group. So a bunch of students go to, let's say, a local grocery store, and they're looking at items to buy, and they all live in the same house, let's say, and uh, they're picking uh, spaghetti, for example. So there's multiple brands. So they show that, this research shows that all it takes is for the first two people in the group to pick a brand for the remaining three to actually follow them. So within the, now applying that, mm -hmm. so obviously I'm extrapolating that result to social media. Now think about it. If you see 1,000 people liking and tweeting and retweeting a post, just the amount of adoption rates following those thousand is just going to exponentially increase, right? And from that viewpoint, I certainly think there's benefits to sort of limiting access to retweets. So that's from a consumer standpoint. Now from the platform standpoint, social media platforms use different algorithms to show content to different users. For example, Facebook uses an algorithm called EdgeRank that ranks different information based on their recency, the amount of engagement that information has got, and it ranks it on your newsfeed. So you're able to see the stuff that's hot and happening because people like to know 
you know, topical stuff. People like to know what other people are talking about. So that has been the motivation for Facebook to, to weigh information differently. Otherwise, what was happening was, so they didn't have the EdgeRank algorithm like five or six years ago, or they had a basic version of it. Wherein, you know, if a firm was posting too much content, so all the older content would actually go down to your feed and would never get any, any engagement. So uh, firms pushed back, uh, pushed back on this and said, you know, this is not acceptable. I mean, this is, you know, what's the point then? You know, there's always going to be, it, it's really dependent on people's subscription to these sites. So Facebook realized that and quickly put weights on information. And that gives the platform so much power to show information to consumers. So now the platform needs to act ethically in terms of what information it wants to show. In recent times, we know that several platforms have, have come under scrutiny in terms of you know, what information they're showing. So from that viewpoint, retweets are okay as long as the platforms take the responsibility in terms of weighing information correctly. So I know that Facebook has ramped up its efforts in terms of determining what posts are fake versus, you know, accurate. They have fact checkers. They're they're building machine learning algorithms, deep learning that actually determine based on the way the sentences are worded whether or not it's fake. Now that's all fantastic stuff. So if they're able to implement that and somehow put a weight on retweet, that'll be helpful. So that so that'll push the onus on the platform itself. So we don't really have to get rid of the retweet. So I think the basic, the fundamental idea, I agree with. You know, there is some concern about retweets, and we all need to think about it. But every actor in this social media business model needs to think through these retweets, you know, whether or not they're, they're good for them. Like for, for a consumer standpoint, when you see a retweet, I would say based on that Atlantic article, uh, don't jump on it and blindly retweet right. without thinking through it because that's going to have repercussions for people that are not processing information correctly. From a firm standpoint, you know, obviously you want your content to be retweeted, so there's always going to be push from a firm standpoint, from a commercial standpoint, for firms to actually spend money on posts and things like that. Retweeting is good. From a platform standpoint, I think they'll have to incorporate retweeting more into their algorithms in order to be more responsible in terms of what information they show. So that's my take on it. <laughs> I think it's a good take. Vancey Canary, thank you so much for oh, Ted, doing been the a show. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.